If you sucked all of the moisture out of your brain and broke it down to its constituent nutritional content, what would it look like? Most of the weight of your dehydrated brain would come from fats, also known as lipids. In the remaining brain matter, you would find proteins and amino acids, traces of micronutrients, and glucose. The brain is, of course, more than just the sum of its nutritional parts, but each component does have a distinct impact on functioning, development, mood, and energy. So that post-lunch apathy or late-night alertness you might be feeling, well, that could simply be the effects of food on your brain. Of the fats in your brain, the superstars are omegas 3 and 6. These essential fatty acids, which have been linked to preventing degenerative brain conditions, must come from our diets. So eating omega-rich foods like nuts, seeds, and fatty fish is crucial to the creation and maintenance of cell membranes. And while omegas are good fats for your brain, long-term consumption of other fats, like trans and saturated fats, may compromise brain health. Meanwhile, proteins and amino acids, the building block nutrients of growth and development, manipulate how we feel and behave. Amino acids contain the precursors to neurotransmitters, the chemical messengers that carry signals between neurons, affecting things like mood, sleep, attentiveness, and weight. They're one of the reasons we might feel calm after eating a large plate of pasta, or more alert after a protein-rich meal. The complex combinations of compounds in food can stimulate brain cells to release mood-altering norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. But getting to your brain cells is tricky, and amino acids have to compete for limited access. A diet with a range of foods helps maintain a balanced combination of brain messengers and keeps your mood from getting skewed in one direction or the other. Like the other organs in our bodies, our brains also benefit from a steady supply of micronutrients. Antioxidants in fruits and vegetables strengthen the brain to fight off free radicals that destroy brain cells, enabling your brain to work well for a longer period of time. And without powerful micronutrients like the vitamins B6, B12, and folic acid, our brains would be susceptible to brain disease and mental decline. Trace amounts of the minerals iron, copper, zinc, and sodium are also fundamental to brain health and early cognitive development. In order for the brain to efficiently transform and synthesize these valuable nutrients, it needs fuel, and lots of it. While the human brain only makes up about 2% of our body weight, it uses up to 20% of our energy resources. Most of this energy comes from carbohydrates that our body digests into glucose or blood sugar. The frontal lobes are so sensitive to drops in glucose, in fact, that a change in mental function is one of the primary signals of nutrient deficiency. Assuming that we are getting glucose regularly, how does the specific type of carbohydrates we eat affect our brains? Carbs come in three forms, starch, sugar, and fiber. While on most nutrition labels, they are all lumped into one total carb count, the ratio of the sugar and fiber subgroups to the whole amount affect how the body and brain respond. A high glycemic food, like white bread, causes a rapid release of glucose into the blood, and then comes the dip. 
Blood sugar shoots down, and with it, our attention span and mood. On the other hand, oats, grains, and legumes have slower glucose release, enabling a steadier level of attentiveness. For sustained brain power, opting for a varied diet of nutrient-rich foods is critical. When it comes to what you bite, chew, and swallow, your choices have a direct and long-lasting effect on the most powerful organ in your body. Picture warm, gooey cookies, crunchy candies, velvety cakes, waffle cones piled high with ice cream. Is your mouth watering? Are you craving dessert? Why? What happens in the brain that makes sugary foods so hard to resist? Sugar is a general term used to describe a class of molecules called carbohydrates, and it's found in a wide variety of food and drink. Just check the labels on sweet products you buy. Glucose, fructose, sucrose, maltose, lactose, dextrose, and starch are all forms of sugar. So are high fructose corn syrup, fruit juice, raw sugar, and honey. And sugar isn't just in candies and desserts. It's also added to tomato sauce, yogurt, dried fruit, flavored waters, or granola bars. Since sugar is everywhere, it's important to understand how it affects the brain. What happens when sugar hits your tongue? And does eating a little bit of sugar make you crave more? You take a bite of cereal. The sugars it contains activate the sweet taste receptors, part of the taste buds on the tongue. These receptors send a signal up to the brainstem, and from there it forks off into many areas of the forebrain, one of which is the cerebral cortex. Different sections of the cerebral cortex process different tastes, bitter, salty, umami, and in our case, sweet. From here, the signal activates the brain's reward system. This reward system is a series of electrical and chemical pathways across several different regions of the brain. It's a complicated network, but it helps answer a single subconscious question. Should I do that again? That warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you taste grandma's chocolate cake? That's your reward system saying, mmm, yes. And it's not just activated by food. Socializing, sexual behavior, and drugs are just a few examples of things and experiences that also activate the reward system. But overactivating this reward system kickstarts a series of unfortunate events, loss of control, craving, and increased tolerance to sugar. Let's get back to our bite of cereal. It travels down into your stomach and eventually into your gut. And guess what? There are sugar receptors here too. They're not taste buds, but they do send signals telling your brain that you're full or that your body should produce more insulin to deal with the extra sugar you're eating. The major currency of our reward system is dopamine, an important chemical or neurotransmitter. There are many dopamine receptors in the forebrain, but they're not evenly distributed. Certain areas contain dense clusters of receptors, and these dopamine hotspots are a part of our reward system. Drugs like alcohol, nicotine, or heroin send dopamine into overdrive, leading some people to constantly seek that high. In other words, to be addicted. Sugar also causes dopamine to be released, though not as violently as drugs. And sugar is rare among dopamine-inducing foods. Broccoli, for example, has no effect, which probably explains why it's so hard to get kids to eat their veggies.
Speaking of healthy foods, let's say you're hungry and decide to eat a balanced meal. You do, and dopamine levels spike in the reward system hotspots. But if you eat that same dish many days in a row, dopamine levels will spike less and less, eventually leveling out. That's because when it comes to food, the brain evolved to pay special attention to new or different tastes. Why? Two reasons. First, to detect food that's gone bad. And second, because the more variety we have in our diet, the more likely we are to get all the nutrients we need. To keep that variety up, we need to be able to recognize a new food, and more importantly, we need to want to keep eating new foods. And that's why the dopamine levels off when a food becomes boring. Now back to that meal. What happens if in place of the healthy, balanced dish, you eat sugar-rich food instead? If you rarely eat sugar, or don't eat much at a time, the effect is similar to that of the balanced meal. But if you eat too much, the dopamine response does not level out. In other words, eating lots of sugar will continue to feel rewarding. In this way, sugar behaves a little bit like a drug. It's one reason people seem to be hooked on sugary foods. So think back to all those different kinds of sugar. Each one is unique, but every time any sugar is consumed, it kickstarts a domino effect in the brain that sparks a rewarding feeling. Too much too often, and things can go into overdrive. So yes, overconsumption of sugar can have addictive effects on the brain. But a wedge of cake once in a while won't hurt you. Let me tell you how miserable my mornings are without breakfast. I hate everyone. Yes, everyone. Even that old lady who took the last seat on the train. I hate you. Hey guys, Julie here for D News. Do we need breakfast? I mean, your mom always tells you you need to eat it, but do you really need to? A recent study published in the Journal of Public Economics says yes. The researchers found that schools that provided free breakfast for their students had better test scores than those that didn't. The kids performed 25% better in math and had similar gains in other areas like reading. But this news isn't entirely new. Breakfast is often heralded as the most important meal of the day, and science backs this up. There are loads of studies that show just how important it is for learning and memory, but it might not have the weight loss benefits you think. Anyways, is it breakfast that helps give your brain a boost, or is it the type of food you eat? I mean, the brain consumes a lot of energy. Almost 20% of the energy we consume goes to the brain. Some researchers say that the brain functions best when there's 25 grams of glucose circulating through the bloodstream. So really, you should keep that as level as possible. Any spike or dip can leave you feeling off. So maybe eating more frequent, smaller meals throughout the day can help you avoid a post-lunch crash. But is there a way to hack your brain with food? Is there such a thing as brain food? I mean, I was always told to eat a banana before a test. Curcumin and omega-3 seem to be buzzing around the blogosphere of late, and that may have some truth to it. According to a paper published in the National Review of Neuroscience, these nutrients lessen cognitive decline in the elderly and improve cognition in people with brain injuries. Your typical sources of omega-3 are in fish, like salmon, and in other things like flax seeds and walnuts. Curcumin can be found mostly in turmeric, a type of spice. Other nutrients, like iron and B vitamins, help memory and brain function in women, while diets high in saturated fats tend to do the opposite. 
Omega-3s and other micronutrients might be the heavy hitters of brain food. One study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition found that a cocktail of omega-3s, iron, zinc, folate, and vitamins A, B6, B12, and C helped kids in Australia and Indonesia do better on learning and memory tests. Another study published in the journal Appetite by some of the same researchers found that foods low on the glycemic index are better for breakfast. The glycemic index rates food based on how it affects your glucose levels or level of sugar. The study found that yes, kids' memory and cognitive function do decline throughout the morning, but a low GI breakfast reduced that decline more than a breakfast with a high GI. Low GI foods are like fruits and vegetables or maybe even oatmeal. So a good breakfast might be a bowl of oatmeal with a banana rather than a bowl of sugary cereal. So a balanced diet with fish and fruits and veggies seems to be good for the brain. Eating breakfast might keep you perkier in the morning, so you're more alert to learn more. And some studies even show that old wives' tale of chewing gum for a test is true. Chewing gum increases blood flow to the brain, which does all sorts of good things. So before a big test, eat a good breakfast, no not sugary cereals, and maybe have a piece of gum. What is your go-to test food? Let us know in the comments below, and while you're at it, hit those like and subscribe buttons, and keep coming back here. We've got new episodes every day of the week. We know that brain health depends on proper nutrition. And so when we see people who have nutritional deficiencies, maybe for example, having not enough vitamin B12 or missing uh, certain fats like the omega-3 fats in their diet, we see that there's a, a vastly increased risk of illnesses like depression and anxiety. We also know that in clinical trials, we can, we can use those nutrients to actually treat uh, brain illnesses like depression and dementia. So every good psychiatric evaluation involves some lab testing just to make sure that the basic physiology, things like your thyroid, your B vitamin levels, um, the amount of potassium and sodium in your body, that those are normal. And for a lot of people they are, but for some people they aren't. And, and those are instantly reversible uh, deficiencies. If, for example, if you have an iron deficiency, you're, just, you're gonna be sluggish, you're gonna have a, a brain fog, you're not gonna feel well. It, it's interesting that we sort of start with evaluation in labs when really part of my work has been, how do we get food into the conversation? And so I can assess you with a lab test, but for example, if you never eat wild uh, salmon or mussels or, or any good fatty fish that's a good source of those uh, long-chained omega-3 fats, we know that your levels are gonna be low. And so really we can learn a lot about someone's nutritional status just by asking them simple questions. It doesn't require expensive testings. In, in our clinic, we simply ask people what they eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that, that's really uh, the goal of, of my book, Eat Complete, is helping people, walking them through a nutritional assessment. It's called the simple food assessment just because it's, it's simple. And thinking about what are your challenges at every meal and, and what are the nutrients and the foods, most importantly, the foods that are missing. We know that there are these uh, very important nutrient-dense foods. So they're foods that have more nutrients for your brain per calorie. And we want those nutrients because you use them to, to make everything in your brain. I mean, if you think about it, every molecule in your brain starts at the end of your fork. And so really, it's what I love about food in, in clinical practice, I'm a psychiatrist, is that it, it gives us an intervention that really you can focus on and employ every day. And it's a way that we can help patients and, and people in general take care of themselves, really employ self-care uh, with every bite. So that, that's the idea behind nutritional psychiatry, as it's being called. So a lot of times we, we focus on superfoods or singular foods. I've, I've focused a lot of my work on kale, but really what we want to think is, is in food categories. And, and what I see in clinical practice over and over again is these same food categories are missing in people's diets. And when we look at the, the eater landscape in America, 
what we see is that people are really missing some of these key nutrients. They're, they're eating very, um, we call it the beige diet or the 12-year-old boy diet, like lots of highly processed foods, not a lot of colors. And we want to get people having more of those rainbows on their plate. So, so the food categories that I really love to see people put back into their diet when it comes to eating for brain health, we love to see the leafy greens, so things like kale. Uh, I've got some some watercress right here that uh, uh, I particularly like, very, very nutrient-dense green. And by nutrient-dense, that's a very important concept. It's much more important than calories. Calories really only help us calculate nutrient density. And nutrient density is the bang for your buck. So something like this watercress, it's going to be under 30 calories for a whole cup. And with this or any other leafy green, you're going to get so much vitamin K, vitamin C, vitamin A. You're going to get fiber. And you're going to get these phytonutrients. Those are molecules in plants that we understand they're much more powerful than just antioxidants. So leafy greens and crunchy vegetables, or we call them the rainbow vegetables. You want to look at your plate and you know, see colors, right? You want to see uh, greens and reds and oranges, because each of those colors represent a different phytonutrient, a different um, palette of medicine, as it were. A lot of those powerful phytonutrients, they're what color a plant. So we know everything with red, like that red pepper has lycopene, just like a tomato and a watermelon. So colorful fruits and vegetables and leafy greens. Uh, and, and then the category that so many people are missing is seafood. So we want to get more wild fish, and particularly small fish, like anchovies and sardines. And there are all kinds of really fun, creative ways to do this. Um, I love to prescribe ceviche because it's a no-cook way of doing food, something like a scallop or shrimp just in lime juice. And so in terms of the nutrients, so what are we trying to get into people's diets when we get them to eat more of these leafy greens and seafood? And we're getting much more of these long-chain omega-3 fats. Those are very critical for brain health. The longest DHA is actually what brain cells are made of. And then others, like EPA, for example, is a very interesting fat that helps kind of thin the blood. And imagine that your, your blood's kind of silky smooth, and that's, that's obviously very important in terms of delivering oxygen to the brain and also preventing vascular disease as you age. Other nutrients that, that we just want to see a lot of in people's diets, we want to see more fiber, um, just more plants, because as we understand the connection between the gut and the brain, you can't, you can't have a healthy brain without a healthy gut. I mean, everybody just knows that, I think, a little intuitively, right? When you don't feel well down here, you don't, you don't feel well up here. We also understand there's a lot of crosstalk between the brain and the gut, um, just literally hundreds of thousands of, of uh, neurons, nerve cells that communicate back and forth between the brain and the gut. And we know when the gut has certain bacteria living in it, the bacteria that really get fostered and are promoted to grow when you eat more plants, and more crunchy plants, and more fermented foods. That's one of the key nutrients that often gets left out of the conversation, fiber, because gut health is so key. So omega-3 fats, the B vitamins, vitamin B12, which the food category for that are going to be mussels, clams, and oysters. Just find very high concentrations of both B12 and other minerals that are important for the brain, like zinc is one of my favorites. And so the, the idea behind nutritional psychiatry and behind Eat Complete is how do we look at what nutrients are missing and then translate that into food? So instead of telling people, hey, you should eat more iron, we say, hey, you know what a surprising food is that's full of iron are, are clams, right? Or another uh, great source of iron are, uh, are these cashews is one of my favorite, Because right? along with um, leafy greens and seafood, we want to get a lot of nuts, so almonds, uh, cashews, here's a nice almond full of vitamin E, and then these are some of my favorite um, medicines in my clinic. These are 
These are pumpkin seeds, and, and pumpkin seeds or pepitas uh, are great for three nutrients, zinc, magnesium, and then tryptophan. Tryptophan is the amino acid that we use to make serotonin and dopamine. These are very, very important mood-regulating and learning-regulating neurotransmitters or chemicals in the brain. And so the, the idea is to give people a core set of foods. So you, you know, again, with every bite, you're getting all the nutrients that your brain needs. Hey, this is Brown Buddha from The Heaviest Grain, giving a call in to working like a woman. I really like your title. I really like the name of your podcast. So I hope this is something that you're using, you know, not just to anchor, but elsewhere. I think that's a, it's a beautiful thing that kind of calls attention to uh, some of the stereotypes and some of the misconceptions that we have about men versus women and so on and so forth. So anyway, I think that's dope. I also like a lot of what you post from what I've been hearing. There's a lot of interesting things, and I feel like, you know, I like the way you, the wheels turn in your brain. So please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for favoring my station. I hope to hear more, and I hope you uh, come by, check me out, and enjoy some of the things that I have to share. I would love, I would definitely love to be a part of what you're doing. So uh, as soon as I find the one that I want to, I know I'm going to call in. All right, so you'll be hearing from me soon. Peace. Hey, Brown Buddha. Thanks for the call in. And I'm glad you like the name. That is the meaning that I was going for, trying to break some of those stereotypes. And I haven't used it anywhere else yet, but um, I think I will in the future. And I'm glad you're enjoying all the segments I'm putting up there. I hope you continue to enjoy them, and I will definitely come over and check out your station. Thanks for that call-in. Hello, Working Like a Woman. This is D Souls Productions, LLC. Legacy. Um, I was calling in about that uh, <laughs> uh, the Google Deep Mind, the AI learning on its own. Uh, do I recall? I think it was uh, was it Facebook or was it Google that they had to shut it down because it started to make up its own language, and they weren't sure if it was uh, communicating among themselves and making the communication simpler. Uh, they thought it was jibber jabber, but it was actually, they were actually making their language more simple to communicate with each other. So yes, that's getting very, very uh, scary. <laughs> but uh, good stuff. Keep bringing the good content. Love listening to you. Bye. Hey, D-Souls. Thanks for that call in. And I'm glad you're enjoying the content on the AI. AI was my favorite subject in college. I'm a computer scientist and still continues to be absolutely fascinating to me. I never got a chance to work in the AI field. It wasn't that popular when I finished college in the early 90s. But I understand a lot of the you know the the core concepts and and what's going on with the AI. And it can be scary. And I think that was Facebook. I remember reading about that. I need to go back and look to confirm, but I'm pretty sure that was Facebook that, that shut down that AI system. Yeah, it was commuting, communicating back and forth. Like they, they shortened the language. I think they, they, the two systems altered the words or you know they were putting them in a different order. They were basically creating their own language, which is what AIs are 
supposed to do. So I'm sure for the developers, it was very exciting. And I would bet in some manner that program is still running. They may have, you know, limited its access severely, but I bet you that's still running because I'm sure they're pretty curious what it would do. But we certainly do have to monitor AI. And I don't know if you heard the segment I put out there about the the bias and the cognitive bias that, um, you know, we could certainly unknowingly allow into our AI programming. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it because that, in my opinion, is the scariest thing, putting those biases in without even knowing it. So thanks for your call in and I'll talk soon. Wow, what's happening? Working like a woman. This is Mr. Campbell from Cybershots. Yeah, that's getting kind of it's getting kind of cray cray crazy right there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, technology is just evolved like like an explosion. I mean, I'm at the age now where I actually saw Star Wars the first day it came out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I saw Star Wars in the theater the first day it came out, the first one back in the day. And um, it looks like it's catching up. So, wow, that's that's crazy. All right, you have a good night or day or whatever time zone you're in. All right, peace. Hey, Mr. Campbell, thanks for that call in. And you know, I actually saw Star Wars, the original release. I was seven years old, but I saw it in a the theater too. And yeah, how exciting. I love the fact that the, that, you know, it's still continuing and that we took the kids to see it and Z and I were just talking about how the cuts are still the same. He thinks it's kind of old school, but I don't know. I think it's kind of cool that they're keeping it the same. And when I was growing up, you know, different series, Star Trek, but my father was a Trekkie, so Star Trek was always on, you know, and we... we apparently, Obi has something to say about Star Trek, too. <laughs> but... Star Trek was always on TV and, you know, we always saw the Star Wars movies and it, it really shaped, I think it shaped our entire generation to look forward to the future and look forward to all these technological advances and look how far and how fast we've advanced since then. I think sci-fi, sci-fi movies, sci-fi books have a huge impact on our society and really shape the way that the future's, you know, the future scientist's mind is thinking. So thanks for that call in. And I actually had to go back and look to see what the date was of the original release. I remember seeing it as a kid, but I couldn't remember when it was. So thanks for that and have a great night. And just a little update on that last segment. Yes, our dog's name is Obi. He's a Labradoodle, and yes, he's named after Obi-Wan Kenobi. So that tells you something about how much we like Star Wars. I wanted to add something more to this segment about participation and the media and how we view it takes so much from us, and yet we give so much to it. But the satisfaction feel, like any addict for any drug or act that you could be addicted to, it's the the longing for satisfaction and if 
satisfaction is really the vice, then what are we really noticing and not noticing about ourselves? I'm satisfied, to be honest with you, being a part of Incarnation and being a part of your station and one a listener. I am happy that I've made a great connection with different people and it just keeps growing. And I think long as I keep that for myself, I know I won't be a drone, so to speak. So that's my opinion. Hey, Jason, thanks for that call in. And I agree. Yeah, satisfaction. I mean, if we weren't satisfied or didn't have some sort of satisfaction in what we did, well, then there's no point in doing it. I mean, really. I mean, even the the things that we don't want to do, like work or school, or I know some people want to do it, but you know, if there's something that we don't really want to do, but we have to do it, there's still some satisfaction in knowing that we're looking towards the future or that we're making money to pay the bills or do the hobbies that we want to do. So there, you know, there's still a sense of satisfaction. So absolutely, you know, you have to be satisfied with what you're doing. But my question is, you know, what about an addict? Doesn't an addict feel satisfaction? Doesn't your brain show satisfaction when you're addicted to something? How do you know you're addicted to something if all you're looking for is satisfaction? I wonder, and I'm I'm going to have to do some research on that, but that's my question. Honey, you won't believe this. We've both been featured in the latest Integrity Radio mashup. This one's titled Ultimate Marketing featuring Z and Ronnie. Wow. So if anyone out there has not heard Z's mashups, please go out to his station, Integrity Radio, and take a listen. They are absolutely amazing. Totally creative, original music, featuring voices of people all over Anchor, and um, there's so much fun to listen to. So go out and take a listen, and I'll, I'll repost some of those at the end here. Thank you. And thank you, honey. I love your call-ins. So I've been posting a lot lately about the brain and different disorders of the brain, how we become addicted to different things, why we feel anxiety, what we do about anxiety, why we feel superhuman when we're really not, why we think we know everything when obviously we don't, why we think everyone should listen to us, the different cognitive biases that we have and why they're so dangerous. But how are we supposed to overcome these things and how are we supposed to really think about them and understand them if our brain can't function properly? So tonight I've posted a lot of segments about proper nutrition and proper nutrition specifically for brain function because we all want to progress 
we all want to understand how and why we do things. But without the proper underlying nutrition and the proper health and without proper brain function, we can't do that. We'll waste what little energy we have just trying to fight fatigue and fight disease. It's not that hard to eat healthy. You just need to put your brain to it.